Before we launch into the message here this morning, just one thing I want you to, to, to know about. Uh, there's a change next Sunday that especially you parents need to take note of. It's our mission as a church to, uh, now some of you, you have our mission statement committed to memory, so you can say it with me. It's our mission to make disciples who experience new life in Christ. No one knows it. Okay. Who, <laughs> I feel all alone up here. <laughs> who express new life to one another and who extend new life to those who don't yet know God. That's what we're all about, making disciples. And that's true of our kids too. We're here to make disciples of our kids, to train them up, to raise them up, to follow Jesus, after Jesus Christ with their whole hearts. And so we do that in a few different ways here in the church, including uh, kind of some age-appropriate instruction in their classes here Sunday morning, which will continue. But we think as a church, it's really important that our children uh, participate in kind of the full life of the church here, and especially worship in this space on a Sunday morning. And so just beginning next Sunday, uh, parents continue to check in your kids with the check-in system prior to the service, but then uh, feel free, you're encouraged to bring your, your uh, Sunday school age kids with you into the service here so that they can be a part of the worship before uh, they get dismissed after the worship and then you parents uh, will be invited to take them back to their classes if you like and then that's when the class will actually begin. For those of you um, who need care for them throughout the whole service, maybe you're in an adult class during the service or something, the, the volunteers will be there right through the whole service. You can drop your kid off earlier, but the class time doesn't really... Uh, 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 What's the word I'm looking for? Begin. That's a big one. That's a big word. <laughs> the class time doesn't begin till the, till the kids are released. So that's a change happening uh, next Sunday. We, we want our kids to learn how to worship God with us here. And not only that, but to participate in, in uh, and, and observe other functions of the church. For instance, baptism, right? Baptism is important. God calls everyone to, uh, who would follow after him to be baptized after they give their life to him. And uh, so March 18th, and a few Sundays from now, we're having a baptism Sunday, which is always exciting. We've had a few people come forward who have just felt the call of God to, uh, to take that step of obedience. And so if there's anybody here this morning, you've chosen to follow Jesus, but you haven't taken that step of obedience uh, to be baptized, just know this. The Bible says that's the next step. I, I don't need to know anything about you to know that, because the Bible says that's the next step. And so if that's you, you haven't taken that step, I just encourage you to come um, or if you just, you're interested, you're curious, come uh, speak with me. Or you'll find at the Welcome Center out in the foyer there, uh, uh, there there's a, a stand folder with some studies on baptism, just two-page studies. If you want to dig a little bit deeper, find out what it's all about, grab one of those studies on baptism, uh, go home, um, work through that, and then maybe we can have a conversation. With that, Baptism Sunday is March 18th. I, I hope that we'll have a number that take that step. So we want to expose our kids to baptism, but Jesus gave us baptism as, uh, as a command to observe. Jesus also gave us another act. We call it an ordinance, which is a fancy way of so saying something that's been ordained by God, something that's been instituted, given to us to, to, to do, an act that is a symbol of a spiritual reality. One was baptism. You know what the other one was? That Jesus left the church? Hint. Yeah, it's that thing that's glistening in your eye down there. Yeah, communion. Some of you, you grew up maybe calling it the Eucharist or Mass. or The Bible calls it the Lord's Supper. And so if you've been here around here long enough, you know that at the last Sunday of every month, we gather together and we come to this table and we eat a little cracker and we drink a little thing with grape juice in it and we call it the Lord's Supper or communion. 
And, and maybe you've done that month after month after month and it's easy to do it without really understanding what we're doing. The message this morning really is about the Lord's Supper, okay? Because we're in a series called You Asked For It where we're addressing the questions that you've submitted over these last few weeks, some great questions, some ones I ain't touching with a 10-foot pole, okay? I just, I ain't gonna do it. That's too hot. Uh, but, but some great questions. And the question this morning, as I kind of formulated it uh, to the sermon title in the bulletin is, can communion kill? Can communion kill? The Bible says yes, okay? That's to kind of pique your interest a little bit. Uh, and it's not because there's gluten in there and you might react to your celiac disease. and send you, that's, not, that's not how communion can kill. Um, but we're, we're gonna get there, we're gonna get there. Um, I, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, whenever we were invited to go to someone's place for supper, my, my mom was always anxious about how us kids were gonna behave. Right? I don't know why. I was an angel. I was an angel. But um, I remember vividly, often, m- mom coming down and stooping down and saying, now, Rusty, we're going to the Johnsons for supper. Now, you need to be on your best behavior. You need to eat whatever is put in front of you. And if you don't like it, you lie and you say it's delicious. Okay? <laughs> you chew with your mouth closed. You don't leave the table until you're dismissed. Okay, now you behave yourself. And so we always got kind of that lesson on table manners every time we went to someone's house. Why? Because we wanted to be worthy guests. We wanted to honor our hosts. I remember a few years uh, later when I was 15 years old, I took a trip to Mongolia. I've I've shared with you some of the stories that came out of that month spent in Mongolia. I'll I'll never be able to top that trip. It was incredible. I had no idea what I was getting into. I was so naive. But I found myself in this little gare, they called it. It's one of those circular felt tents that the nomads live in out in that part of the world. And, and um, we were honored guests in this, in this gare. And as honored guests, we, as we entered in on, the, on the, the table in the middle, there was, there was a big, about this size, hunk of fat. Okay? Now, in, in that culture, uh, the, the, the highest delicacy is, is, is called the sheep rump. Okay, now I don't know anything about sheep, but if you know something about sheep, you know that on the bum of a sheep is a big piece of fat. That sound familiar? No, just... <laughs> Sorry, I, I... I get to that point and there's a part of me, there's a bad part of me that just wants to say something that I shouldn't. <laughs> and I normally listen to that part of me. <laughs> anyway, so, so, so on the rump of a sheep is this big hunk of fat. And in that culture, it's a delicacy. And they serve that to their guests. And so that was sitting there, and, 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 and our host, he, he lopped off a big hunk of fat, about the size of a baseball. Cold fat. Cold. And I'm just trying not to just vomit looking at it. Anyway, he gives it to me, and, and, and you, you are so honored. Here's, here's this gift, this hunk of fat. And so he's watching as I'm going to eat it. You know, what do you think? And so I, I, t- I took a little nibble, and I just all within me to not spit it out, right? I chewed it. I was able to get it down. And I thought, how am I going to do this? Like, I can't be rude. I can't be a bad guest and, like, not eat it or give it back to him. What do I do? I was... And so God is gracious. And he, the guy had to leave the tent for a minute to do something. <laughs> anyway, so this is my opportunity. So I looked around, and I was sitting on a couch, and I just threw it under the couch. And... <laughs> And he came in and it was all gone. He said, you liked it? Oh, yes. Would you like some more? Oh, no. No, thank you. Thank you. It was very good. Yum, yum. Um, 
And so anyway, I've told that story a few times, and I'm sure that guy is out there somewhere in Mongolia telling the story of this, this skinny little 15-year-old white kid that threw a hunk of fat under his couch. And, you know, but we go to great lengths to be good hosts, right? To be worthy guests. And I mean, if, if, if you're going to be that conscientious about going to the Johnson's table, how about the Lord's table? How much more conscientious should we be when we come to the Lord's table that we be worthy of what's happening here? Because the Bible says, and this was the question that was submitted, um, how do I eat the Lord's Supper in a worthy way? Because we're going to go to a text in a few minutes that says there is a way, Paul says, uh, some of you are eating this in an unworthy manner and you are sinning against the body and the blood of Jesus Christ with some terrible consequences. Now, you've maybe read that and wondered, what does it mean to eat in an unworthy manner? Because we don't want to be those sort of guests at a table, especially the Lord's table, right? And so that's the question we're going to um, look at you know, this morning. Now, I, now, now, for some of us, we've, we've come and we've, we, we, we've, we've taken this, we've done this maybe many, many times without really fully understanding what it is we're doing, what it is we're doing. Um, I read a story of a little girl who asked her mother, Mommy, why do you cut the ends of the meat off before you cook it? Uh, the mother um, said that she thought it added flavor to the meat. It allowed it to absorb the spices better. So, uh, but perhaps she should ask her grandmother since her grandmother has, had always done it that way. So the little girl found her grandmother and said, Grandma, why do you, you and Mommy cut the ends of the meat off before you cook it? Her grandmother thought a moment and said, I think it allows the meat to stay tender because it soaks up the juices better. But why don't you ask your nana? After all, I learned it from her and she's always done it that way. The little girl got a little frustrated, but she climbed into her great-grandmother's lap and she asked, Nana, why do you cut the ends of the meat off before you cook it? And, and Nana answered, well, that's simple. I had to. My cooking pot wasn't big enough. She said, which is kind of a, a funny little story to say, we do things without really understanding why we're doing them, don't we? We've developed these maybe in life, and certainly in church, I think, some of these traditions or habits, and if we're not careful, we, we forget what it is we're doing and why it is we're doing it. And I think it can certainly be that way here with communion. You know, maybe you've come from different church backgrounds where you've seen it done different ways, and people have developed all sorts of different rules and regulations about how this is supposed to happen. Okay, who's supposed to give it? What words you're supposed to use? How often you're supposed to do it? Who's allowed to take it? There's all, and, and you know, churches have been split about this. In fact, I read uh, uh, a book for my ordination called The Baptist History in Canada. If, if you trouble, struggle with insomnia, I will give you this book. It, it'll, it'll be like that. It, but anyway, but way back when, the, 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 there was one group of Baptists that became two group of Baptists because they had disagreements over who was supposed to eat this and how it was supposed to be done, right? And so whole denominations have been created and split over questions about that. Um, and considering so many people feel so strongly about it, we find surprisingly little instruction in the Bible about the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at what's there, but we're going to be surprised about how little it actually says. But what it says then is very important. Now the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record for us that on the day before Jesus was crucified, he shared a meal with his disciples. Was it Da Vinci that famously painted it? Uh, or is it Michelangelo? Da Vinci? Doesn't matter. Raphael, Donatello, how many Ninja Turtles were there? I don't remember. <laughs> um, 
and, and he had a final supper with his disciples. At that supper, now, it, it, was, it wasn't any normal supper. You see, Jesus happened to be crucified. I don't think by chance. This was a part of the big plan of God. But he happened to be crucified on a very special weekend in the life of, of the Jewish nation. You see, God had commanded the Jews at this time every year to observe what he called the Festival of the Unleavened Bread or the Passover, which was a way of re, of, for, for the people of God to remember how hundred, uh, hundreds of years ago when they were in slavery in Egypt, God had delivered them out of Egypt. And if you know the story, we, we can't really go there, but he, he told them to take a lamb, to sacrifice a lamb, and to take some of that lamb blood, put it on, put it on the, the posts of their door, and then anybody who was within the home covered by that, the blood of a lamb would be shielded and protected by God. And this is what happened. And God delivered his people. He saved them from bondage in Egypt. And so God uh, as a way of remembering God's deliverance, he had said every year at this time, observe this meal. That's what Jesus and his disciples were doing. They were having the Passover meal, which had bread and had different cups of wine. It was very structured and meaningful. But, but the Bible tells us, the three gospels, that in, they're in the middle of this meal and Jesus stops them and he says, see this bread? And he picks up bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. At the time, they were thinking, what is he talking about? They would know 24 hours later. And then he picks up a glass of wine and he says to them, this is my blood, which is shed for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And at that time, on, on, on that evening, Jesus instituted what, what will, Paul will just call the Lord's Supper, where we remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross in the breaking of his body, in the shedding of his, his blood, how he has delivered us, all who believe in him, from sin and from death forever. Good news? That's something to celebrate. And so, in fact, the word Eucharist, if you come from a, maybe a Catholic tradition, you use the word Eucharist or an Anglican church, it's just the Greek word that means thanksgiving. This is an act of thanksgiving as we are reminded of what Jesus has done for us and what belongs to us because of his broken body and his shed blood. And so he calls us to again and again as the church to gather and remember. Remember as you eat and as you drink. And so this is why we do this 2,000 years later to remember. Now outside of that, there's no other instruction. It was just come together and eat and drink and remember. There's actually only really one other passage in the Bible that tells us about this table, how we ought to do this, what this means. And we're going to turn there in a few minutes. Uh, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you have your Bible, feel free to turn there. Uh, the Bible doesn't, doesn't, never says who should and shouldn't come to this table to eat, to have this meal. The Bible never says who should give it out. I remember back uh, at church I was at previously, um, when we started having people coming and serving that weren't church board members? Ooh, is, are you allowed to do that? Doesn't the Bible say it has to be the chairman of the board and the vice chair of the board? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't, doesn't say who's supposed to give it. doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say how often you're supposed to do it even. You see, back when the church was born in Acts chapter 2, it tells us that those first Christians, they gathered in homes every day together, celebrating, praising, worshiping, and breaking bread together every day. But then it seems that over time, you find in Acts chapter 20, 
a few years later that they get, it says the Christians gathered on the first day of the week, Sunday. They gathered, and one of the things they did when they gathered was they broke bread together. They took the Lord's Supper together. So it changed. And here we are today in our church. We take it the last Sunday of every month. Blind River, it was the first Sunday of every month. Some other churches, it's every Sunday. Some of you Mennonites, were there any like two times a year people? Anyone? There's a few of you. You took it like twice a year, right? So how often? Well, the Bible doesn't say. No instruction, okay? Um, Pliny, now Pliny the Younger, you all know Pliny the Younger. He was a Roman governor in around 100 AD. We, we have record of some of his letters to the Emperor Trajan. And at that time, he was really concerned about this growing movement of people who called themselves Christians. And so he was writing to Emperor Trajan looking for some instruction how to deal with these people. And, we have, and, and so one of the letters, in fact, this is the very first record in Roman documentation of the existence of Christians, okay? Written about 100 AD. So this is a letter from Pliny the Younger to Emperor Trajan where he reports that Christians uh, are meeting on a stated day of the week in the early morning to address a form of prayer to Christ as to a divinity. And later in the day, these Christians would reassemble and they would eat in common a harmless meal. We're going to find what they were doing is they were doing Lord's Supper. But how he described it is they would reassemble later in the day to eat in common a harmless meal. But the question is, is it harmless? Because Paul, we're going to see in the very first verse we read, says it is doing harm. It's not harmless. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 I'm going to read verses 17 through 34, so you can follow along. Chapter 11, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Now, he's going to kind of come down hard on these people because they need it. For your meetings do, do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I even believe it. No doubt there, there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. You think it's the Lord's Supper? It ain't the Lord's Supper. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry while another one gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or, you just, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord Jesus what I passed on to you. And now these are the, the, the famous words that we, I'm going to say in a few minutes that I always say at the table. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Now listen to this. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep. You know what he means when he says fallen asleep? They're not waking up. 
They're dead. Okay? Some of you have even died as God's judgment for how you have done this. He says, wow. Now, I don't know what you think of that. Um, you see, back in Jesus' day, they thought all sickness was the result of sin. You remember, I think it's John chapter 9, when the disciples and Jesus, they come across a blind man and they go, well, Jesus, who had been born, I think, born blind? Um, Jesus, who sinned? Did it, is this blindness because of his sin or his parents' sin? As if there was a third option, right? Um, Jesus says, no, no, no nobody sinned. It, it's, it's just that God allowed this man to be blind so that in his healing, God could be glorified. And then he was healed and God was glorified, right? It wasn't a, a result of sin. Not all, not all sickness goes with sin, but then I think it's really easy to swing to the other side and say that there's, ap- there's never any correlation between those two things. When the Bible says, no, at times there is. Which is why in James chapter five, it says, if any of you are sick, call the elders to come and to lay their hands on you and to pray over you that you might be healed. Confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. And so even there, he's talking about there's a connection at times between our our behavior, our our sinfulness, and and the consequences we experience in the body. And this is what uh, Paul is saying here. Some of you, because of doing this in an unworthy manner, are sick. And it's God's judgment on you. So I don't know how you think about that. Um, Sorry, that was a little aside. Let's continue. This is why many uh, among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. So there you have it. That, outside of the accounts of Jesus having that meal with, with his disciples in the Gospels, that's it. That's it. Some were eating in, in an unworthy way, we find in verse 27. Sinning against the body and the blood of Christ. Um, and obviously this was so serious to God that God thought they needed to be judged in various ways. Okay, through sickness. They needed to be turned. That was such a harmful behavior they were engaged in that they need, God would need to do whatever he could do to turn them from that harmful behavior. So whatever it was, God is taking it very, very seriously. What's the issue? Okay. What does it mean to, to eat in an unworthy manner? In verse 29 it, 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 it speaks to this again. It says, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So eating in an unworthy manner means eating without discerning the body of Christ, whatever that means. Eating without discerning the body of Christ. Now what does that mean? What sort of person is he talking about? Now, in the next few minutes, I I just want to present what I think are two very common misinterpretations of what that means, and then one, what I would call an uncommon but proper interpretation of what it means to not not discern the body and to eat in an unworthy manner, because I think this has been very misunderstood often. I think some people 
uh, understand Paul to mean unbelievers are taking part. That's the problem. There are people that aren't really Christians at all. They're unbelievers, and yet they're taking it. They're eating, and because they're doing that without actually believing in Jesus, that's the problem. It's it's unworthy, and they're going to receive the judgment of God because of that. And maybe you've heard at this table, maybe in this church, I don't know, maybe in other churches, but you've maybe heard the preacher stand here and go, now, just hold up here, a little disclaimer. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never put your trust in him, then don't eat this. Just pass this by. This is for Christians alone. Maybe you've heard that. I've ne- I don't say that. You maybe noticed I don't say that. And there's, there's reasons I don't say that, which I'll, I'll, I'll get to here. But that comes from a fear, maybe, that the unbeliever, should they eat, maybe unknowingly. Hey, they just got invited by, by their neighbor. Hey, come to church. <clears throat> That the fear that a believer might incur God's anger in eating something they ought not to have eaten. As if God might be up there going, that, that wasn't for you. You spit that cracker out. You spit it out right now. That was not for you. Is that, is that what this is? Um, I think there's actually indication that that's not at all what Paul is talking about. In fact, I think it's pretty clear. He's not talking about unbelievers eating. Because if you go uh, to... Verse 32 of of, uh, chapter 11, he says, uh, Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Who are those that are finally condemned? Who's the world? He's talking about unbelievers. He's He's saying, those of you who are being judged because you're eating unworthily, you're doing that, or God is judging you to discipline you so that you will not receive the condemnation that unbelievers will receive when they persist in their unbelief. So he's not talking about unbelievers because they are already stand under condemnation due to unbelief. They can't be any more judged or any more... Under God's, under God's judgment or condemnation. So he's not talking about unbelievers here. He's talking about believers that are being judged so that they won't receive the judgment of unbelievers. Well, oh, and just, you don't mind if I say something else to you? You, you got nothing else to do today? All the nervous laughter, I love it. <laughs> um, verse 26, um, after, after recording the words of Jesus, Paul says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Now that word proclaim is the word preach in Greek, and every time that word preach is used, it's actually talking about the, the, the verbal, physical preaching of the gospel. So what, what I think a lot of people have understood there is the, the church is actually using this time to educate unbelievers about the gospel, okay? In fact, you find in first, uh, chapter 11, uh, four, sorry, 14 of 1 Corinthians, a few chapters later, Paul says twice in that chapter that unbelievers are in their fellowship. He calls them inquirers. They're there. And he says this is how you ought to behave so that they understand what's happening, okay? And so uh, they're there, Paul says, And he says, this is a way that you can preach to them about what Jesus has done, the good news that he offers them to welcome them into this. And so, anyway, 
I think we can say from this text, he's not, Paul's not talking about unbelievers taking part. He's talking about believers. Well, maybe he's talking about struggling believers, people that are wrestling with some sin, people that aren't really doing so well spiritually. Okay? Now, that's, that's kind of the understanding I had growing up, what was taught to me. Uh, there's that verse that my parents quoted to me a number of times. We find it in verse 28. Everyone ought to examine. That was the key word growing up in my house, examine. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Well, what was I supposed to examine myself for? Now, my understanding, the way I was taught was, Rusty, is, was there any sin in your life? Did you sin this week? Was there anything you did that you maybe ought not to have done? That might be a problem that you come and you eat this and you might be eating in an unworthy way. And um, So I, I remember seeing my mom very often just pass the plate by. And I knew why my mom wasn't taking communion. She was the pastor's wife. The pastor's wife sinned, like a lot. <laughs> like way more than pastors. Except for you, Karen. I think you're an exception to that. Um, but I saw my mom pass that by, and I, and I knew what that meant. She felt like that there was just something. She had been struggling with something this week. She had felt distant from God this week. She wasn't worthy of this. Now, I, I think if you feel that way, if, if, if there's some struggle in your life, you're just feeling distant from God, I think the invitation of God is come and eat. Come and be reminded that it has nothing to do with you and your work and your efforts and your righteousness, but all what Jesus has done for you that this represents. Be strengthened, eat, and be comforted. Right? So I, I don't think he's talking about struggling believers. They ought not to eat, otherwise they might be eating in an unworthy way. So what is he talking about? I think within the context of these verses, and we often, we often forget just to look at the context, which often clears up our questions. We're going to look at the context here. I think it'll make it pretty clear what it means to not discern the body of Christ. Uh, you see, uh, as, as we heard in Pliny the Younger's letter, how the Christians would reassemble later in the day to share in common a harmless meal. What we find is that in, in this time, the church would, they might have like a, more like a church service in the morning, and then later in the day, kind of maybe after work hours, because they didn't have weekends. You've got to thank God you live in 2018. We don't know how spoiled we are. I mean, back then, there was no such thing as like a Saturday or a, like an, a weekend. I mean, the, the Christians here, they worked, especially the, 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 the lower ones on the socioeconomic scale, they worked seven days a week, maybe 14 hours. There was no holidays. And so they would gather later in the evening, you know, when everyone was off work. And they would gather together and they would have a meal together. And, and that meal, in the, in the little book of Jude, right before Revelation, it calls it a love feast. That's the term used. So they had a feast and it had something to do with love. They called it a love feast. So they had this meal. And then at the end of the meal, it seems... They, and it was like a full meal. It wasn't a cracker. It was a full meal. And at the end of the meal, they did something special. They had the Lord's Supper at the end of the love feast. Okay? And we, we, we hear about this actually in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. We're told that um, at, at the Lord's Supper, there was one loaf. So after they had eaten their meal, 
however that looked, they, had, they took the Lord's Supper, and there was one loaf we find, 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. What is the body, the one body? Church. We're going to need to understand this when we come back to what does it mean to discern the body of Christ? Well, here we have a clue. Because there is one loaf, we who are many form one body, that is the church of Jesus. For we all share the one loaf. And so as a way of showing that they were one body, that they had been made one family by Jesus, through, through faith in Jesus Christ, they, 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 um, they symbolized that and celebrated that by having one loaf. And then they would rip it and they would each take pieces around and ha- ha- rip, a, rip a chunk of bread off of the loaf. And then they would have a one cup. Now, I don't know if there are any gerbophobes back then. I guess they had no idea how disease transmitted from person to person. But they had one cup and they would all drink from a common cup. And we're told by Paul, it's to show that they were one. Jesus had made them one. Okay? They were one body, one family. Um, because that's why Jesus, so that's one of the reasons Jesus came to die, you know. It's not just about you and God. Stop thinking it's just about you and God. It's not. He had way more in mind when he died on the cross. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 2, 13 uh, to 15. But now in Christ Jesus, you who uh, once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, that is Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. Why did Jesus shed his blood? Well, one of the reasons he shed his blood was to make peace, not just between us and God, but between us and one another. That where there would be hostility between, between men, that, hosti- that wall would be taken down and love and peace and unity would exist. Um, you know, in 2003, I spent the summer in Macedonia. Some of you know where that is. It's a country in southern Europe, really fractured. It still is today. But I had come there just a year after they actually had war in the, in the, village, the, the village next to where I was. Um, there had been, um, you know, lots of, lots of fighting and killing. And... Uh, in, in the nation, th- there were two groups of people that absolutely hated one another. The Macedonians and the Albanians. They were totally different. Macedonians spoke Macedonian. They were Eastern Orthodox Christian by tradition. They had their own customs, their own culture. They went to their own schools. They had their own neighborhoods they lived in. They shopped in their own stores. They had their own sports teams. Then there were the Albanians. They lived on the other side of town. Okay? They had their own language. It was Albanian. Cool, that works. They were Muslim. They had their own customs and tradition. They lived in their own communities, went to their own schools, had their own sports teams, had their own grocery stores, and and never the two met. Except for one place. There was one place I saw where these two people loved one another, where there were no distinctions. Do you know where it was? Every Sunday morning in Macedonia, I went to church. And it wasn't a Macedonian church, and it wasn't an Albanian church. It was an everybody church. And this was the only place I saw my whole time there where you had Macedonians and Albanians scattered hand in hand singing together their love for God. 
united, loving one another. The only place. That's why Jesus came to die, to make peace between people, right? Through knowing the love of God, being able to give that love one to another. That's what he's talking about here. God unites people in love with one another. And so Jesus, before he goes to the cross, his final prayer to his Father, it's recorded for us in John chapter 17. Uh, He says this in verse 22. Father, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Hey, why did God give, why did Jesus give us the glory, his glory? So that we may be one. Who's we? You and you. That you may be one. As we are one, Jesus says, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and, and have loved them even as you, you have loved me. When will the world believe in Jesus? Is it when they see that guy in the soap corner saying, you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus? I mean, maybe some people are scared in the, to, to Jesus through that. People have been, sure. But what does he say? When will people know that Jesus is the Son of God? When they see his people living in complete unity. When they see such a radical love and oneness that the only explanation is this is real. This is real. Jesus says, may they be one as you and I are one, Father. And so Jesus, um, in the Gospel of John, now, now John, he records, he, he doesn't record the details of the meal. He says, while the meal was in progress, Jesus did something. Now John's the only person who records what Jesus did. We see it in John chapter 13. It says, while, um, while the meal was in progress, Jesus got up from the meal he took off his, his cloak, his outer garment, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. He wrapped a towel around his waist, and he came to someone very much like Shandina here. <laughs> Except it was the 12 disciples, okay? And, and, and he got down with, with a wash basin, and he took off his disciples. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, okay, let's put that back on. Let's put, oh. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry, Shan. <laughs> he took off their sandal and he started to wash their dirty feet. Dirty feet. I mean, they were sandals. This was the desert caked on gunk. He started to wash their feet. That was the work of the lowliest servant. And the disciples said, what are you doing, Jesus? Never. No, we should be washing your feet. And he said, you don't understand. Unless you let me wash your feet, you, you can't be with me. And as as you have seen me do, he said, you ought to do one to another. This is what he says. Thanks, Shan. You're a good sport. <laughs> Verse 14, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Right? What does he do when he takes this with his disciples? just the most humbling act of selfless love. He washes their feet and he says, now I want you, as people who believe and follow me, I want you to do the same with one another. Love one another. A new command I give you, he says a few verses later, 
in verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my, my disciples if you love one another. As I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. You know what this is about? This is about the love we have for one another through Jesus. Expressing that love and that unity. Baptism is, is a symbol of our union with Jesus Christ. Communion is a symbol of our union with one another in the church. And that was the crux of the problem. This is why some people were doing this in an unworthy way as we'll come to find out. Uh, because if you look at the context of what I read there in 1 Corinthians 11, you find that um, some people were arriving early. Who were they? The rich people who didn't have to work for a living. Who had other people do their work? You see, back in those days, they didn't have church buildings. They just found the guy in the church that had the biggest house, the biggest courtyard, and they met there. So they all gathered at this guy's house. They, they filled one of the rooms, the richer people, feasting on luxurious food, having this supposed love feast, right? Maybe four o'clock in the afternoon. Who knows? But later on in the day, as, as the working class start, they're done their shift and they start wandering into church for this meal, they find the food's gone. It's all been eaten. The cup that was meant to be shared was gone and they were drunk with the cup that was supposed to be for everybody. The food that was supposed to be for everybody to share their love was gone. They'd eaten it all. They had no regard. They did not discern the body of Christ. They humiliated their brother. They were unloving towards their brother in this way, in this instance. And so what does it mean to, to eat without discerning the body of Christ? It's, it's to eat in a supposed love feast, in something that's supposed to represent our love for one another when you're not loving your brother. When you, are, when, you are unloving, when you are unloving, when you are mistreating, when you are holding bitterness in your heart, when you refuse to be reconciled with your brother and then coming together and pretending that you're united by taking one loaf and breaking it. I saw this in churches I've been in. Mrs. So-and-so sat over there. Mrs. So-and-so sat over there. They had had a big fight. They wouldn't look at one another. They wouldn't talk to one another when they passed one another. They sat in the same church and they took communion together. But it was a farce. It was a lie, Paul says. Don't pretend that you love one another when you don't. That's eating in an unworthy manner. So, so what does that mean? It means that when an unloving believer takes part, an unloving believer takes part in the meal because communion is an act of loving unity. And so when Paul says in verse 48, examine yourselves, before you eat. That's the work for us to do. To examine ourselves. Not to see if there's any sin there. Of course there's sin there. I mean, and if there's sin there, then repent of that sin. But that's not what he has in mind when he says examine yourselves. He's saying examine yourselves to see if there be any lack of unity or love for your brother or your sister. Have you been acting in any way that would make this a lie? Paul is wanting me to ask, am I really one? Am I treating another as I ought to? Am I holding something against another? Am I bitter towards another? 
Am I showing a lack of regard for my brother? You might remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. As I bring this to a close. Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus says, in verse 23, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift right in front of the altar. Don't even wait! Leave it there. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Because then it's acceptable to the Lord. Because if you, I think that's Jesus' way of saying, if you think you can have fellowship with the father while mistreating the father's child, you have another thing coming. I mean, if I see you mistreat one of my kids and then you want to come and you want to like be my friend, and I know you all want to be my friends, you, you don't... You have, a bad, you have a weird way of showing it, but I know deep down, y'all. But I, but I see you mistreating my kid. Then you want to come and act like everything's okay. Say, I'm just trying everything with my power not to punch you in the face. Right? If I'm being honest. Jesus doesn't punch people in the face, but, but he, he says there is judgment to discipline. Someone who is thinking they can have fellowship with God while not having fellowship with a brother. Of mistreating a brother. Paul says, do not eat in an unworthy way. A new command I give you, love one another. And so as we come to the table now, um, Jesus says this in, in Luke chapter 7. You can throw those questions up there. Luke chapter 7, Jesus says, whoever has been forgiven much, do you know? Who has ever has been forgiven much? Loves much. Loves much. Who, whoever has been forgiven little? Loves little. So the question when we come to the table is, how much have we been forgiven? Have we been forgiven little or have we been forgiven much? And if we come to this and if we find we have been forgiven much, then, then, that, then the word of Jesus to us is love much. Those who are forgiven much, love much. So I think the key for us in loving one another is to understand the fullness of the measure of God's forgiveness on us through Jesus Christ, which is represented here before us. So as we come to this table together, here's some things to think about. The group is going to sing a song, and if they want to come up and get ready, they can. Um, as, the, as the cup and uh, the plate are being passed, there's going to be some music. If you want to sing, you can sing. If you just want to reflect uh, and think and pray and thank God, you can do that as well. But as you're receiving these elements, think about the size of the forgiveness God has given you and thank Him for it. Think about what this means and then thank Him. Celebrate what God has done for you. And then ask yourself this. We don't want to take this in an unworthy way. Have I been unloving in any way toward a brother or sister? Am I living unreconciled? Am I living angry? Am I living bitter? Am I living judgmental? Have I been unloving in any way toward a brother or sister? Ask God, Lord, is, is there anything in me like this? And then what do you need to do to make it right this week? Or right now. Like if there's that miss so-and-so there and that miss so-and-so over there, if you would want to stand up right now and come and hug right here, 
I think that'd be cool. I think that'd be really cool. And I've seen it happen. And that's a powerful thing when it happens because that's what this is supposed to do. It's supposed to come bring people together to reconcile, to live united in love, in common love. So as, as you take care, just ask yourself that question. And if there be anything that's just been unloving in your life towards uh, another brother or sister, then what do you need to do to make it right this week? Because we want to be those who eat this in a worthy manner. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that in your love for us, you sent your son Jesus into the world to take our place on that cross so that there would be no more judgment left for us, no more condemnation. And your word promises there are, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who believe and have repented. And so, Father, we thank you that for those of us who, who have believed in you, that we know that we are forgiven. There is no condemnation. There is only love and acceptance from you. And Father, if there's anyone in this room who has never, never put their trust in you, never believed in you, never repented of their sins and turned to you, Lord, I just pray that you would, you would show them the greatness of your love for them and what you offer for them through your son Jesus. Might anyone, um, anyone who's in here this morning in that position just receive that gift through faith. And uh, so, Father, as we think on what you've done for us, the greatness of your forgiveness, Lord, we examine ourselves. If there's any way, Lord, in us which we have been unloving towards another, I just pray that you would show us that thing, Lord, and just give us the courage to go and to make it right so we can live in this complete unity that you call us into so that the world may see and believe. In Jesus' name, amen.